This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is the fifth and concluding episode discussing the most rapid fire of all of Shakespeare's plays, the tragedy of Macbeth. And if tragedy is, as Aristotle describes it, an imitation of an action that is serious, complete, and of a certain magnitude, well then, today we visit the completeness and we see the incredible magnitude of Macbeth's fall. Christy, as we conclude the play, uh, we must admire Shakespeare's ability to make us feel pity for what Malcolm terms a butcher and his fiend-like wife. I mean, how does he do that? (laughs) It's a trick for sure. I mean, he takes a man... And has him commit some of the most horrible crimes a person could commit, but at the same time keep him so sympathetic that when he dies, we as the audience pity him. We don't despise him, and we're not even happy to see him die. And you know, we somehow see him as a good person doing bad things instead of just an evil person. Um, It's such an important distinction in multiple studies, social scientists, uh, specifically Dr. Stanton, same now, for one, has observed that all of us need to feel like we're good people. Even criminals who have acknowledged to committing heinous crimes still see themselves as fundamentally good people and need to see themselves as fundamentally good. Well, I know it's cliché these days to reference Taylor Swift, but I will, because in her documentary, you know, she admitted feeling that in her. She said all of her life she wanted people to think of her as a good girl. Well, what equation does that have with uh, with killers? <laughs> I'm just Swift. saying that, you know, from Taylor Swift to, to, to Macbeth, you know, we all have something inside of us and not everybody's willing to admit it. But she is to say, you know, I feel this. I just need to be good. And when we look at people that, in his case, have done terrible things, you know, it it makes you question that. I was just seeing if you were attacking Taylor Swift, who is on a par with Dolly Parton these days, apparently. But 
Well, um, you know, of course Taylor did. She's human and she's voicing what every human must think of themselves. And, and we must think of the people we like as good people, too. If we don't, we suffer um, psychologically. And Shakespeare demonstrates that here in Act 5 with Lady Macbeth. Uh, what happens when we stop seeing ourselves that way? And, and he leads us to find ourselves sympathizing with her you know, the one who is complicit to the murders and really not being sympathetic to the families of the victims. And um, he will also show us through Macbeth how we can find our own virtue, even to the very bitter end. You know, I have to admit, I like Lady Macbeth, uh, Lady M, as those of us who oh, like her call For her. those of you who are close. <laughs> you know, I guess a lot of people do. Uh, and Shakespeare's tricky like that. We like Macbeth, too. Hmm. I know. It's impressive because it's a short time. And in, even in the beginning of the play, in a short time, he convinces the audience that Macbeth's community, I mean, his superiors as well as his peers, think of him as good as noble, respected. I mean, Duncan calls him a valiant man. And honestly, he will be valiant, really, until the minute he dies. Uh, we see that Macbeth loves his wife. I mean, to the point that he considers her his equal, something that was not common in his day. And he loves her, I believe, until she dies. It's at her death that we see him have this existential crisis. And we see that even though he murders in war, he has a conscience. He has a sense of, of right and wrong, a, a sense of duty. Even though in Act 1 he admits to having fantasized about killing Duncan, he never deceives himself that it's morally justified. He doesn't even argue that it's a morally neutral thing to do. The Macbeth of Act 1 is someone that not only if we met him, we'd like him, we'd probably admire and want to be like him. You know, Macbeth is not a psychopath who just delights in death. And we clearly understand that he doesn't get any kind of satisfaction from murdering King Duncan. In fact, the opposite. Macbeth's crimes weigh on him. After every murder, there's a scene like the one we're going to see here at the beginning of Act 5, where we're not made to feel sorry for the victims or their survivors, but we're made to feel for the Macbeths because we're going to watch them self-torture and ultimately self-destruct. And well, that's interesting. And, you know, I guess that's true. And uh, we don't feel bad for Malcolm when he loses his dad or Fleance when he loses his. And uh, we really don't even feel for Macduff after he loses his entire family. But we are going to feel sorry for Lady Macbeth here in Act 5. And, you know, Shakespeare is being quite tricky going back and forth like that. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of these um, tricks that he uses uh, to to make create this effect. I mean, well, first of all, we don't ever see Macbeth commit any horrible deeds, uh, even though we know he's responsible for him, for them. And that that's kind of important. You know, it's one thing to hear that somebody did something bad, but we get a stronger and a very different reaction if we are going to see it. Shakespeare shows us Macbeth killing in battle, and that's not cowardly like killing children. Also, pay attention to this, because I think this is important, too. Shakespeare does not absolve Macbeth of the responsibility of the murder, because that wouldn't be tragic. Macbeth is accountable to us. He's accountable to himself. He absolutely sees his own demise as his own fault. And we admire people who take responsibility for their lives. I mean, we know plenty of people who are incapable or unwilling to do something like that. 
And we admire people that are strong enough to shoulder the responsibilities for their actions, especially when they're not good, even evil. It's why, you know, when we watch great football quarterbacks, we consider them heroes, if you think about it, in the United States. You know, they lose and they stand on the stage and they always say, it was my fault. You know, we as spectators and fans, you know that that's only partially true. We'd watch the game. There were reasons. Other people made mistakes. There might have been bad calls from the referees. There might have been bad weather. And these are the same, you know, kinds of things that we see in Macbeth. We still we still feel sorry for him because we kind of understand how he got to the place where he's at. There were reasons. He believed the witch's prophecy. His wife did bully and manipulate him. He truly thought that it would only be just this one crime, then the whole thing were over, the crown would be in reach, and yet the choices were bad. They were immoral. Some were driven by fear and anxiety. I mean, these are emotions that we're vulnerable to. His choices make sense to us as we go through the play to the point that maybe we could see ourselves making similar choices. Maybe we have made similar choices, you know, less hyperbolic, you know, circumstances. I don't know that any of us have committed regicide, but we have listened to the weird sisters only to immediately wish we could undo the mess we've made. We've gotten into things likely that so far deep that it's just as difficult to go back than it is to keep going forward. And it feels like Macbeth is experiencing kind of a series of tragic errors more than evil choices. Well, in this act, uh, these tragic errors can also be evil choices (laughs) and uh, weird or fate plays them out. And when Macbeth dies, Shakespeare makes us feel a kind of relief, like he's finally out of the mess and he has been given a gift to die as a brave man, kind of circling back to a better time when he was the valiant Macbeth of uh, Act One. Maybe he can somehow find rest in the afterlife, something he was never going to get in this life, no matter what happens on any given day. He will never sleep on earth, ever. Act Five is bloody. It is about war, internal and external. In episode four, we read Malcolm's lines about the coming of Seward. In act three, when Macduff goes to London, we read about the Holy King and Northumberland and and Seward. And, And Gary, for those of us who don't understand these references, before we get into the psychology and the philosophy of the play, let's start with the real life historical context. Tell us who are these people that are coming to save the day. Obviously, they're the English, but who are these 10,000 men marching towards Scotland? Or is this whole thing kind of some fictionalized that Shakespeare made up? Oh, no, this is a real battle. And uh, I love the historical part, obviously. Um, But I did want to mention that it's possible and even easy to enjoy the play, just knowing that the hero Malcolm, the son of Duncan, is coming uh, to restore order. I mean, that's the narrative purpose. And 
This other stuff is just fun for the history nerds, so I'll try to be quick. But uh, first, we meet the character Shakespeare calls the most pious Edward in Act Three. That's Edward the Confessor, the English king at the time of the play, and he was born in 1003 to Emma, a, a princess of Normandy. And because of a series of complicated events having to do with her, he grew up in Normandy, but still became king of England at age 23. And Although he did reign for 24 years, which is impressive, he isn't considered a very strong military king. He's considered weak. Uh, In fact, uh, after his death, England was conquered by the Normans largely because of him. But that's not to say he wasn't respected. Um, He was, you know, not for his military prowess, but for his religious devotion. And that's what Shakespeare alludes to when he calls him the most pious Edward. He was uh, recognized as a deeply religious person. Specifically, he made a vow of chastity that he took seriously, also known as no heir to the throne. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah. Edward's faith journey was so respected uh, that a century after his death, he was canonized by the Catholic Church and today is known as St. Edward. And, you know, people believed, uh, and we see this reference in Macbeth, that King Edward had powers to heal sicknesses by laying his hands on people. And there are churches named after him, including one uh, near us in Nashville, Tennessee. And he even has a feast day, October 13th. Christy, that is just one day after your <laughs> your feast day, your birthday. Interesting. So the English king, um, Edward the Confessor, is not a great warrior king. And he doesn't invade Scotland himself. And uh, he sends this guy, Seward, in real life and in a play, it is Seward that invades Scotland. And, you know, it's possible Shakespeare brings up Edward, not because of the war, but because this idea of a king's touch having the power to heal was something King James believed that he had also. So maybe we're inserting some fan fiction here by, uh, you know, implying King James by virtue of this kingly connection, you know, has a pretty impressive superpower. <laughs> Well, actually, he was a dirty guy. Probably nobody really wanted him to touch him. But, you know, I'm sure that's part of it, uh, that that he was trying to impress the king. But I, there's also this literary sense, you know, King Edward's power to heal well, would make him a foil to Macbeth, who has power only to kill. I mean, Edward has talked about a couple of times. You'll notice that he's in all, and he's a healer, but he doesn't appear on stage and he doesn't play a role Uh, And the final battle, because obviously he's not there. Historically, uh, you know, there's another very practical reason for Seward to be the thing that invades Scotland. And that is because in reality, Edward, although a king, was mostly a figurehead. England at this time period is full of feudal lords. And Seward, uh, who in real life was actually Malcolm's grandfather on his mother's side. Oh, my gosh. It gets confusing. You need a map. Uh, He was the uh, powerful Earl of Northumberland. And uh, this is the area of England that borders Scotland. And he is the key player in the region. And in Shakespeare's play, he comes in as a hero in the name of the king. But, of course, as you might expect, the real story is far more messy. Uh, Seward actually did become king by murdering his wife's uncle. Kind of ironic, since that's what Macbeth in the play does. Also, in real life, the war between Macbeth and Seward took over three years. And, you know, the point that Shakespeare does get right is that by the time Seward invades, most Scottish things have deserted Macbeth for the English invaders. And 
just for the historical timeline, uh, Malcolm became king of Scotland at age 26 in 1057, and he stayed on the throne as Malcolm III for 35 years. Seward, unfortunately, does not get rewarded by Malcolm for his loyalty of supporting him because he dies almost immediately after his final battle with Macbeth. And, you know, for further English context, if you need it, um, hmm. Edward the Confessor dies in 1066, and that's just nine years after the war we're reading about in Macbeth. And when Edward the Confessor dies, that's when we have the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquests. So there you go. The drama continues in another place. And Shakespeare is borrowing from a lot of historical sources. <laughs> So the bottom line is just one fight after another. Well, yes. Well, and let's get back to ours. So we're, we're, we're at Dessanane, and that's Macbeth's castle. This is the site of our battle. And Act Five, you know, it doesn't actually open on the battlefield. It opens inside the castle with the character that we haven't seen for five scenes, and that would be Lady Macbeth. And we're going to see the price that Lady Macbeth pays for her part in what has happened. And it is bitterly ironic because this is the woman, if you remember, who chided her husband to wash Duncan's blood off of his hands. And now she can't get this blood, this metaphorical blood out of her mind or soul. You know, if you remember like Macbeth himself, she surrendered her agency uh, to spirits we watch her pray in Act 1, and let me read those words for you. She literally says, Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here and fill me from the crown to toe top, full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood, stop up the access and passage to remorse, that no compunctious visitings of nature shake my fell purpose, nor keep peace between the effect and it. You know, in other words, she she begs some evil spirit, make me so ruthless, I can't feel remorse. Don't let me feel my humanity. Look, listen to what she says. I'm going to read more. Come to my woman's breast and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers. Wherever in your sightless substance you wait on nature's mis- mischief. You know, as we referenced in episode two, women's breasts through milk nurture and they give life and she wants to be the opposite of that. Unsex me in the sense, and I don't want to be a nurturer like women are. I want to be a murderer, kind of like men are. (laughs) You know, in the Bible, uh, when Jesus died on the cross, a soldier offered him gall And he did that as a way to kind of numb the pain that he was going through at the moment because, and Jesus didn't accept it because he wanted to feel the pain and guilt of human experience. And this is where you see the biblical illusion playing here because Macbeth does not want to feel. But here's the question. Is that a thing (laughs) that can happen? Did the murdering ministers give her what she wanted or must she live out this regret from a choice that she made that she shouldn't have? Is she really so unfeeling? You know, so many productions play Lady Macbeth as being this cold, calculating woman. But Act 5 shows us that even though she tries her best to be this unsexed, tough guy, she isn't. As much as she wishes she didn't, she still has human kindness. In other words, she still is part of humankind. She still feels. 
we meet two characters here, a doctor and a gentlewoman. And the gentlewoman is telling the doctor that ever since Macbeth went out to war, Lady M is getting up. She's putting on her nightcoat. She unlocks her closet. She gets out paper. She writes on it. She reads it. She seals it. Then she goes back to bed. You know, Christy, uh, remember when we talked about King James's interest and uh, self-declared expertise in demons? Yes. Uh, Shakespeare equivocates enough for everyone to draw a different conclusion about what is happening in Lady Macbeth's head. But I would like to speculate that King James may have thought that this is an indication that Lady Macbeth is possessed by demons, you know, by those murdering spirits she was praying to in Act 1. And uh, he may have interpreted this as her getting what she asked for, but not realizing at the time what she was asking for, you know, demon possession. And that's one way to, to see what's happening inside of her. Uh, you know, however, as we read this play as modern readers, we might understand what's happening to her in a different way. If Lady Macbeth sees herself as a murderess and as a bad person, which I think we can easily tell that she does, then we know from uh, modern psychology that our psyche experiences a um, you know a whole host of observable symptoms, many of which we can see in the speech. I mean, things like low self-esteem, isolation, self-sabotage, anxiety, depression, guilt, and shame. I mean, the gentlewoman tells the doctor as they watch Lady Macbeth that she regularly gets up in the night to spend a quarter of an hour rubbing her hands. Let me quote her. Yet here's a spot, out, damn spot, out, I say. One, two, why then? Tis time to do it. Hell is murky. Fie, my lord, fie, a soldier and a feared. What need we fear who knows it, when none can call our power to account? Yet who would have that the old man to have had so much blood in him? She's talking about Duncan. She's remembering his bloody body, and she can't understand why she's afraid. I mean, they're not in trouble, and yet she can't get the spot out. And, of course, that word spot is a play on words. Uh, King James would have understood it one way, and we might understand it another. I mean, in those days, witches were believed to have spots. They were also called witches' marks. And this is a, a physical mark on one's skin, like a wart or something that the devil left so the devil has left a mark, perhaps because she asked him to, and now she can't get it off. Of course, the other way of thinking of it is that, you know, she's dreaming of trying to get the blood off of her hands, and she can't literally wash it off in her dream, and uh, that would be a nightmare for sure. And of course, the Freudian interpretation of that is that she can't get rid of her guilty conscience. Out, damn spot, I say out. Well, either way, uh, you want to understand the word spot it definitely refers to blood. I mean, the word blood reoccurs more frequently in Macbeth than in any other play that Shakespeare would write. I mean, he equivocates as to what blood means, especially in these final scenes. But as we said in episode one, the play begins and ends with blood. These images of blood affect Lady Macbeth. And I want to point out something about her speech patterns here that give us an indication as to how Shakespeare wants us to understand Lady Macbeth. In Act 1, Scene 5, in the beginning of the play, when Lady Macbeth is talking, she speaks in iambic pentameter. I'm going to give you a quote, so just so you can hear it. Listen for the beat here. That I may pour my spirits in thine ear and chastise with the valor of my tongue. Now, I exaggerated the quote so you could hear it. You would never, you know, say it quite like that. 
but iambic pentameter. Bump, ba-dump, ba-dump, ba-dump. The language of nobility, of control, of power. All of Shakespeare's leading characters speak in iambic pentameter. Except here, she's not noble anymore, and neither is her speech patterns. There's no beat at all. In fact, she stammers and she stumbles all over her words. A lot of these words are monosyllables. Out, out. Oh, oh, oh. She says that a lot. She repeats herself. No more. Oh, no more. Oh, to bed, to bed. I mean, she's not just losing her nobility. We're literally watching her lose her language. She's losing her humanity. And she's not becoming superhuman. It's to make her subhuman. And Shakespeare reflects this decline in her speech patterns. I want to point out something the well-known Shakespearean scholar A.C. Bradley noted. He pointed out that Lady Macbeth is the only great tragic character in any of Shakespeare's plays to be not to be denied the dignity of verse in their last appearance on stage. You know, Shakespeare strips Lady M completely down here to an absolute nothing, taking away even her language. She's not just unsexed. She's dehumanized. It's very interesting. Um, you know, is that supposed to make us pity her? Yes, I pity her. I think Shakespeare wants me to. Uh, I, I pity her maybe more than I do her husband, even though I do pity him at the end of the play. I mean, it's true. I know she goaded her husband into doing things maybe he wouldn't have done otherwise. That's arguable. What is not arguable is that I don't think she has killing people in her. And Macbeth does. I mean, he opens the play killing people. I just don't think she would have committed all those murders. I mean, she couldn't have actually killed Duncan. She admitted it. He looked like her dad. Uh, Do you know she could have killed a helpless mother and child? I don't know that she could. Even even in her braggadocious phase, she claims she would, but I just don't buy it. Her uh, tough talk reminds me of the fake bravado we see in kids all the time. I mean, they're willing to talk about how tough they are and uh, what they will say or do when the teacher or the big kid comes back, but when it comes time for action, it is it's just talk. That's what I think, you know. And even though Macbeth did not ask her to be involved in the murder of Banquo, didn't even tell her uh, that or, or that of Macduff's family, she understands that she's played a part. And just her part of these murders is destroying her. And I pity her that. I mean, what we see more than anything is a conflict of values inside of her. I mean, first of all, I think it's nice that she wants what her husband wants. She values him, his success, her role in that. Also, you know, there's this culture to value being king and queen and killing previous kings is common in Scotland. I mean, we were just talking about it. You know, she's willing to bend the rules into how, you know, things are accomplished but I don't know that that's the same thing. I know I'm I'm splitting hairs here, but as murdering a man's wife and child or chasing down a good friend and, and killing him and trying to kill his kid because you're afraid, I mean, that's what makes this play complex. She just is not, to me, a fiend-like queen, the way Malcolm calls her in the on the final speech of the play. Yes, she engages evil, for sure, but it deceives and it overcomes her. And I pity her for that. 
I also want to point out that Lady Macbeth now has a light by her continually. I mean, the entire play has been dark. And in her prayer to the murdering ministers from Act One, she says, Come, thick night, and pall thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry, Hold, hold! But now she won't let go of a candle. I mean, there's a lot of symbolism going on in that. I know. I mean, now she sees a little. But I agree. What does all this mean? Readers and scholars and students, you know, we just don't agree as how to understand this. I mean, for sure, she's revisiting all the blood that's been shed. We talked about Duncan's blood, the old man. But she talks about Macduff's wife. I mean, I like these lines. She says this, The Thane of Fife had a wife. Where is she now? What? Will these hands ne'er be clean? No more, oh, that, my lord, no more, oh, that you mar all with this starting. She understands that things went farther than they thought they were going to go. Yes, and depending on how you read that phrase, my lord, maybe she's blaming her husband. She for sure is not one with her husband. We don't see this inclusive language that we saw at the beginning, this we stuff. She says you. Uh, the first person plural pronouns are just gone. She is alone in her remorse. But the more devastating idea is that she understands her hands will never be clean. Well, the nurse responds to this line by saying that she's saying things she shouldn't be saying, implying that her involvement, or at least her husband's involvement, in Macduff's wife's death is supposed to be a secret, you know. So besides living with the guilt of all these unintended killings, now she has to carry secrets, which is its own burden. And she can't get rid of it. Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh, oh, oh. You know what she means. All the perfume in the whole world, that's what... That's what, you know, perfume comes from Arabia. I mean, all the perfume of the whole world cannot cover the stench of the blood. It's a very powerful metaphor. And it reflects that not only is she a woman with a conscience, but it's a powerful conscience. She cannot shake her empathy for anything in this world. She's just not the monster she thought she wanted to be. And she can't live with herself like this. Well, what I find fascinating about this, and this is a tangent, so I won't dwell on it too long, it, um, is that Shakespeare uh, playing a psychologist here, psychologist here is so far ahead of his time, it's incredible. Theophorastes Paracelsus, who died in 1541, uh, you know, and so in a general time frame of Shakespeare, is considered the father of uh, modern medical psychology. And even that top doctor of that day believes something far different than what we see Shakespeare illustrating. And uh, Paracelsus said that that man is a sick in mind in whom the mortal and the immortal, the sane and the insane spirit do not appear in due proportion and strength. What avails in mania except opening a vein, then the patient will recover. You know, so in other words, bleed the craziness out of the person and what Shakespeare portrays um, is a lady Macbeth realizing she can't get rid of the spot. She can't cover up the spot within herself, you know, alone in her guilt. She finds no grace, no forgiveness, but worst of all, no hope of escape. And her future, as she sees it, is endlessly full of secrets and guilt and shame. And uh, her future, whether it be long or short, is just wearisome. And so 
she decides it's intolerable. And what we will discover with her husband in just a few scenes is that she ends it. Which is sad and unfortunate. Uh, so, do you think she went crazy? No, I don't. I mean, this is not the pathology of a psychopath. So, I don't either. <laughs> Let's move on to uh, Macbeth's end. So, there are nine scenes in Act 5, but they're all short. I mean, some of them are not even a whole minute. And what they do is they go back and forth between the battles. So, we have scene 2 and 4 and 6, and that's on the battlefield. You know, the incoming army, Malcolm, Seaward, the English troops... In scene three and five, we see inside Macbeth's mind. We're on Macbeth's side of things. In scene two, the English army is approaching Dunsinane. Angus references the word of the wood of Burnham. And, and what is he doing? You know, he's just really reminding the audience about the witch's prophecy. And now we know, uh-oh, it's coming down to it. The witch's prophecy about Macbeth are coming. It's just, this is the fulfillment we're getting to the end. We also find out that Donald Bain, Malcolm's brother, is not fighting, but that Seward's son is. Uh, you know, this, by the way, is factual. Um, Donald Bain remained in exile as long as his brother dominated Scotland, which would, you know, ultimately be 35 more years. Yikes. Well, you know, these things just pit each other against each other. But anyway, in scene three, we're inside with the Macbeths, and we watch him react to the pressure of the incoming army. Bring me no more reports, is what he tells his attendant. I mean, there's a range of negative emotion here. I mean, he has to lean into the witch's prophecy for security because that's what he's hanging on. He claims not to be afraid because Malcolm has been born of a woman, so Malcolm can't possibly kill him. I mean, the witches declared it. Uh, let's read what he says. Was he not born of woman? The spirits that know all mortal consequences have pronounced me thus. Fear not, Macbeth. No man that's born of woman shall e'er have power over thee. Then fly false things and mingle with the English epicures. The mind I sway by and the heart I bear shall never sag with doubt nor shake with fear. You know what I find interesting um, is that he's so willing to believe the witch's prophecies that favor him that he's willing to fight the prophecies that say Banquo's sons shall be king. I mean, is Macbeth's fate inescapable or is it not? You know, we're back to the question. Are the witches pushing him even now to his death, or did they just tell him what was going to happen and he was always going to go down this path? <laughs> you know, I'm not even sure Macbeth could answer that. I mean, in scene five, when he understands that Malcolm is coming to the castle covered in these trees and it literally looks like Burnham Woods are moving, he says this, to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that like truth. In other words, he's beginning to understand that those witches were equivocating. <laughs> you can't trust a witch. <laughs> it's here in scene five, you know, when this realization hits that I find myself beginning to pity Macbeth in kind of the same way, you know, that I pity his wife. I mean, he's aware of this reality. He He's aware that evil deceives and it has deceived him. And what that means for him personally, he, he plays it out in his head and he comes to a very similar conclusion as his wife. I mean, even before he accepts that he won't win the battle, he understands that his future, whether it be short or long, is empty. It's alone. There will never be sleep. There will never be fellowship, not the way he, he had it before. And I want to comment on that. Um, Macbeth in scene five still has every reason to believe that he can still win this battle. 
Hang out our banners on the outward walls. The cry is still, they come. Our castle strength will laugh a siege to scorn. Here let them lie till famine and the og eat them up. You know, in uh, in medieval days, um, a siege could be harder on the army outside the castle than inside the castle. The invading army would have to sit outside those walls and the elements and wait until the people inside starved to death. And, you know, that could take a lot of time, and that was not an easy thing to do. And uh, during this time period, there was very, very little sense of hygiene. And also, if you remember, lots of those soldiers were deserting Scots and not English. And the English and the Scots don't necessarily get along. And lots of times when these sieges would happen, the invading army would fight itself. And, you know, Macbeth had a lot of reasons to believe that he could hold his castle and kind of wait out the invaders. And I'm not sure. Uh, it's just the invading army that ultimately discourages Macbeth. No, I don't think it is either. I mean, a servant who is conveniently named Satan, or, <laughs> I mean, comes in and says this, the queen, my lord, is dead. You know, the audience doesn't find out until scene nine that she's killed herself. But even in the way he says it kind of implies it. And Macbeth must understand that a woman that he called his dearest partner in greatness is not only dead, but has killed herself. And in that worldview, that's hell. You know, uh, and when he hears these words, we get, you know, those famous lines that are, in my opinion, are some of the greatest lines that Shakespeare would ever write. Uh, Before we read these lines, though, I want to say a couple of things about them because they're very existential. Uh, They sound like something Camus might say, but they do not voice Shakespeare's view of the world at all. They voice Macbeth's view of life at this moment. That is not the same thing. So let's read those very famous lines as Macbeth hears about his wife, understands that the the army is coming, and he reflects on his own life. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, it creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing." It's all gone. She's gone. Life is short and then you die. All of this means absolutely nothing. It is in these words that I find my pity for Macbeth. He has done some horrible things, but he's not icy or stony. Maybe he is evil. He's certainly done evil things. But this play, it's regarded by everyone as Shakespeare's greatest discussion on the nature of evil. And and like I've said in every episode, you know, Shakespeare's asking questions. He's not making statements. You know, A.C. Bradley, the scholar we quoted, argues that in various Shakespeare plays, Shakespeare describes different kinds of evil. He reveals different ways that evil exists in the world, and that might be true. Macbeth, although maybe doing bad things, is not trying to dominate the world. He's not particularly bloodthirsty. I mean, he's not the only person that murders people in the play. I mean, the play begins with Banquo killing people, but that's not considered evil. In fact, Macbeth and Banquo are rewarded in the beginning. 
when we see Macbeth die in scene eight. I mean, he's literally decapitated by Macduff, and that's celebrated as an act of goodness. So there's a lot of killing. They're different killings. And if you're going to try to explain to a child why this person's killing is good and this person, other person's killing is bad, I think you might stumble all over yourself. <laughs> well, that's not uh, only the only question that Shakespeare asks. I mean, are, are only people capable of being evil? What about the witches who are supernatural and you know, what about institutions that incite us to violence? Um, uh, could power be considered evil because it pits people against each other? You know, Macbeth, to me, is an interesting protagonist because he doesn't really seem motivated by greed or by ambition. Uh, we talked about him being motivated primarily by fear or what we might call today anxiety. But that doesn't really define a person as evil, uh, even uh, and it causes people to do evil things at times, even though it does. I mean, it sounds like I'm justifying bad behavior. Uh, uh, in a way, I am. Um, I'm equivocating, if you will, <laughs> because I think that's what uh, I see Shakespeare doing. Um, the Macbeth here at the end realizes that he's done evil. And to use the language of uh, Genesis in the Bible his eyes have been opened. Uh, he sees what he has done, and he knows what all of this means. And it means one of my favorite lines, sound and fury signify nothing. And so with that in mind, he goes into battle. And instead of fearing death, he welcomes it. He fights and he kills Seward's son. And then in scene eight, faces Macduff, who was not born of a woman, but was born by Caesarian. And Macduff tells him, Despair thy charm, and let the angel whom thou still hast served tell thee. Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely ripped. You know, Macduff references an angel here. He's not talking about an angel from God, but an angel from darkness. And Macbeth has served an angel from darkness. He has done the bidding of evil. He has fellowshiped with evil, and evil has betrayed him. Macbeth, with complete awareness of his imminent destruction, utters these final words. Though Burnham Woods be come to Dunsinane, and thou opposed being of no woman born, yet I will try the last. Before my body I throw my warlike shield, lay on Macduff, and damned be him that first cries, hold, enough. You know, it's like he's saying, the only goodness I have left is bravery, and I will hold on to that until the end. And as an audience, I think we kind of give this, or felt this relief that maybe he will have a, a little bit of dignity when he dies. And so then we're left with Shakespeare questions. I mean, here he is. What is a man? What is evil? Where does it come from? I mean, evil certainly destroys. It certainly deceives. But that doesn't mean I can define it, and it certainly doesn't mean I can avoid it. I mean, Christian theology informs Shakespeare's world, and it suggests that sooner or later, a evil gets us all, and it burns us all. But, you know, Christianity, it's not the only worldview that discusses evil or even argues that there are unwritten laws that are written in our hearts and determined for us what good and evil are. They're not something we define for ourselves, even if we wish we could. The Enlightenment called it natural law. And when we violate natural law, God or, or karma or something like that will get us one way or another. And when we see people get what they have coming, we call it poetic justice. 
Sometimes we're even happy about it. But this world that Shakespeare has created in Macbeth shows us that even our own values are contradictory and they can betray us. I mean, Macbeth was driven towards loyalty and betrayal. He was driven towards faith and deceit. He was driven by love and murder. You know, the world is totally encompassed in violence and and maybe that's the very definition of evil. Um, society itself, if that's the case, is in violation to natural law. And so we have a character, Macbeth, who's just caught up in it. He is a man. He is a human, a human. And we empathize with that. He is one who gives up his humanity because he thinks he can get something bigger than humanity. But that something consumes and destroys him. And presumably it's evil. But where did it come from? Maybe it's inherent in humans. Maybe it comes from within. Maybe it comes from without, from the supernatural, from other people, from institutions, other values. But we don't know. And so we're asked, who is Shakespeare judging here? Macbeth, Scotland, authority, the audience? Well, in the end, he equivocates. Yes, he most certainly does. (laughs) (laughs) Theme to the whole play. But we will not equivocate. Thanks for listening again. And don't forget, you can always find us at howtolovelitpodcast.com. On our website, we have listening guides for most of our issues, as well as teaching resources. Also, whether you are a teacher, a student, or a fellow lover of literature, please subscribe to our podcast via YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating, and if you like what you hear, how about a review? It's when you share about the podcast to your friends on social media that we grow. Thank you for supporting us in our mission to make reading great literature accessible and enjoyable to as many people as possible. Peace out.